I'm Roma Agrawal, an engineer, author, broadcaster, and your host for this new series of Create the Future, a podcast from the Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering. We're all multifaceted, and I think we need to bring that to the table, show our humanity to show people that engineers are not robots. Uh, you know, we have... We're not. This I know. Amazing. <laughs> In this series, I'll be speaking to engineers, designers, technologists and thinkers on everything from innovations in textiles. And it allows a future where doctors can monitor you from wherever you are and, and you can go to hospital when you really need it. To sustainable city building. Often we don't really have the idea of a place as an organism. And even baking. Uh, well, have you eaten a baked Alaska before, Roma? I don't think I have. I remember there was baked Alaska gate on oh, yes. British oh, Bake yeah, Off we, at some point. Yeah, we don't talk about that. that was a previous Northern Together, we'll deconstruct some of the biggest problems facing our society, how our world could or should look in the future, and how engineering can help us get there. The more people that we have sort of in the industry, the more diverse minds that we can bring to the table, um, I think the more rich the ideas will be. For our first episode, I want to show you how engineering is in the places you might least expect it. Forget the construction sites I spend time on, the machines and the bridges for now, and turn your attention to knitting. I watched my grandma and my mum knitting for my entire childhood, but it was only during the pandemic that I decided to pick it up for myself, and I was almost quite shocked at how much engineering was involved, from the patterns to the prototyping and even those 3D visualization skills. So I spoke to Dr. Anna Poshaisky and Irmandi Wichaksono to explore the relationship between traditional crafts like knitting and engineering and see how they come together to create the future of smart textiles. Material science and engineering and the stuff that I know about completely stands on the shoulders of the knowledge of craftspeople working out with their hands how these materials behave. Dr Anna is a material scientist and writer who is fascinated by the relationship between engineering and handmaking. That was so inspiring and exciting for me because back then as an engineer I would have never thought I would be able to work with you know fashion designer, industrial designers and I've been into craft back then but I could combine these two together. And Irmandi is a multidisciplinary engineer working in smart textiles at MIT. So I'm sitting here wearing a jumper, which I knitted. Okay, so I've only picked up knitting in the last year and I'm completely obsessed. I've, I've like knitted three jumpers, about four hats and snoods. So I have like my pink beret and I have the snood. And, and, and like gloves. And considering that I don't actually like pink, there's, there's a lot of pink here, which is a bit strange. But Anna, I can see you wearing a big knit. What, what's going on with, your, with what you're wearing? Well, I'm very ashamed to say that the knit that you can see was a purchased oh, uh, jumper. No. <laughs> I'm sorry to say it's for the listeners. It's kind of very brightly coloured and I haven't actually yet mastered the art of um, multiple colours in a knit. But the jumper that I'm wearing underneath, because it's currently minus four degrees where I'm sitting in North London, is one of my own creations. So I'm, I'm going to show you guys on the camera now. Um, it's yellow. It's made of wool from Ireland. Oh, that's incredible. And I can see a bit of texture in there. Yeah, a little bit of texture so so i i just basically get bored if i have to do 
just the same color, same knit. So that's why like my cable knit jumper has these kind of bits on it. And then then I did a two color snood thing where, where I knitted with both hands. And that was a really interesting experience. But I love this. And Irmandi, I'm guessing it's probably too warm in Indonesia where you are to have any knitted creations on. <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm wearing a knitted T-shirt, uh, so it's a yellow knitted T-shirt, but yeah, I bought it. But I tried knitting with hand to learn the basic structure of knitting back then, but it's a very slow process. And But now working with machines is like allows me to be like faster and and it's also interesting in some ways, yeah. I, I was going to ask you, actually, my first question was going to be, Armand, can you knit by hand? I know you can knit by machine, which is a which is a whole different thing. Okay, we've talked about this obsession with, with fibre, with knitting, with putting textile together. So maybe if we can start with Anna, can you tell us a little bit about how you came to this? So my science background is in materials science, which is sometimes known as materials engineering. And we have a bit of a crisis of personal confidence about are we scientists <laughs> or are we engineers? But that's for a different podcast. Engineers. Um, <laughs> so I, yeah, I did kind of academic material science sort of right from the beginning of my career at undergraduate level. And I got quite involved in public engagement and, you know, talking to people outside of university about what material science is and what it can do for us in the world. And I was sort of invited up on stage to do talks and I dabbled around in stand-up comedy and the more I did it the more I became labeled as this expert in materials and that for a while sat with me quite comfortably right because I had some degrees in materials you know I, mm. I kind of I, I did have those credentials but my interest in knitting came from an enormous crisis of confidence in my self as an expert in materials um, because I became aware of this other side of materials, right? So I was very comfortable in the scientific side, right? The metals, ceramics, plastics, mm -hmm. composites, substances, chemicals, like all the stuff that materials science was sort of teaching me. And presumably this is on the tiny scale. So is your comfort at the atomic scale, like how these tiny particles are arranged? Exactly. That's how material scientists think. But then I started talking to craftspeople and makers and potters and ceramicists and stonemasons and paper makers and glass blowers. And I realized that what I knew in the scientific side was really only half the equation. And so I thought I couldn't truthfully call myself a materials expert in public without having a good understanding of how these materials actually feel, you know, in your hand, what's it like to um, hit red hot iron with a hammer what's it like to knit a cable knit jumper from scratch and then I wrote a book called Handmade a scientist search for meaning through making which sits at the intersection of material science and craft it tells the story of me as a material scientist knowing nothing about the world of craft talking to craft people having a go at the way that they make things and through that trying to get an appreciation for how these materials really work when they're in your hands, not just as theories on the paper. That's fascinating. And, and I think what we're going to be talking about today really is, is this perceived division between craft and science and engineering and actually what worlds are open to us if we bring them together? And, and that's, I'm, I just can't wait to explore that with you. Irmandi, I hear that your origin story involves a certain pop star and we have to know a bit more about that <laughs> yeah that's true so 
I am Irmandi Vichaksono, I'm currently a PhD candidate in the Responsive Environments Group at the Amity Media Lab under Media Arts and Sciences program. And my project there, it was related to a musical keyboard. So it's a scarf, but it's also a piano. And I'll talk more about it later, but my journey in wearable computing and smart textiles actually started in the UK. I, I, I was actually born in the UK. I was born in Birmingham. And uh, I decided to do my undergrad uh, in Southampton. And somehow during one of my summers, I got a chance to do an internship in this company called Studio XO. And I didn't know until I was there in London in this very like hidden warehouse because they were probably trying to like avoid the paparazzi that the client was Lady Gaga and they were designing multiple dresses for her. So we just need like, to say that again. The client was Lady Gaga. Okay, we we just need to say that again. Focus on that bit. But yeah, tell us a bit about what happened but because you started off your the studies that you were doing in Southampton was actually in engineering. Could you talk talk to us a little bit about that and then how you ended up designing dresses for Lady Gaga? Yeah, that is true. I I did an electronic engineering degree there, working a lot with electronics and sensor systems and. Uh, programming Arduinos and things like that. And it's exactly what they were looking for because one of the dress called the Anemone, uh, a bubble a bubble factory dresses, like she loves bubbles. She want to create these mechatronic dresses that actively blow bubbles. I was trying to help them in basically programming them and scheduling all the like uh, sucking of the liquid water, opening of the mouth, the crocodile mouth um, flowing the bubble liquid so that it creates this layer as the mouth opens and having this fan turn on right away after that so that mm. blows bubble automatically. Wow. So that was so ins- inspiring and exciting for me because back then as an engineer, I would have never thought I would be able to work with you know fashion designer, industrial designers. And I've been into craft back then, but I thought that you know being an engineer, being an electric engineering, my, my future has been like chosen. It was so interesting to work with them. And actually, it actually defined my career path. In the end, I realized that I want to do, I want to hone my engineering skills and f- focus on wearable computing. And, and it's funny because um, also being here in Indonesia, we have a lot of like crafts and textile culture is very like uh, relevant here, you know, batik, ikat, uh, weaving, um, wax patterning, for example. And when I was a kid, uh, my grandma is a jacquard weaver and I was just, very ignorant. I was just always in my computer on my Game Boy. But it's funny now I'm actually doing things that she would really appreciate and, and I could have actually collaborated with her too. What I adore about this story is I think there are very few people out there, probably including me, like somebody who actually knows the industry and stuff, that would imagine that a pop star would inspire an electrical engineer on a career path. Like it sounds like a fairy tale almost. I had this really interesting, so I'm a structural engineer by background, and I always think about how people designed buildings and structures 2,000 years ago. And at that time, there was no separation between engineers and architects, for example. Craftspeople had a huge range of knowledge about what they did. And so the, the building coming together involved a number of people that had a hugely broad range of skills. And it strikes me that coming now into modern technology, this has really split. And I think because different elements, whether it's structural engineering or electrical engineering or wind engineering, became so specialized and so technical that one person couldn't hold all of that in their heads. So Anna, I'd be really interested if you can maybe give us a little bit of background with crafts and handmaking and how that 
has evolved over time? Like, does it have a similar trajectory to this kind of splitting that I've described with with buildings? Yeah, I think the parallels are completely there in materials engineering as well. Um, the name of my degree was material science and engineering, but those courses didn't really exist 30 years ago. Instead, they were called metallurgy or, you know, metal and ceramic studies. And that metallurgy course was sort of built on the kind of British steel industry and the need to have very scientific and engineering study of that particular industry because it was so important. But what I learned from talking to the craftspeople was that whenever I watched one of their processes, like a pot being thrown on a wheel or a blacksmith working in their workshop, what I could see was the kind of scientific phenomena that I knew about, right? So for example, let's take a blacksmith as a good example with steel. Um, a blacksmith knows the temperature of their materials in their workshop when they take the metal out of the forge because of the colour that the metal gives off when it is heated up. Now, that's a scientific phenomenon which a material scientist can relate the very, very tiny atoms and their behaviour to what's going on in the real world. But for the blacksmith, what that relates to is feeling, right? How the material feels under their hand, how it's going to behave when they strike it with their hammer. And so material science and engineering and the stuff that I know about completely stands on the shoulders of the knowledge of craftspeople and their millennia of experimenting and working out with their hands how these materials behave. I think that's incredible. So I, you know, I did a degree in physics and learned about steel and metals and stuff as well. And then, you know, as you say, I, I have made a nail. Just I'll just drop that in there. Went to a blacksmith's forge, made a nail. And I remember mm -hmm. so clearly that the clanging sound as it cooled down changed and it was really noticeable. Mm. So I completely understand what you're saying about that sort of the, the look of it, the smell of it, the sound of it. Um, I, you're going to have to pardon a potential rant that I might go on and I'm going to try very hard not to swear. But it really, like, it really genuinely frustrates me that, you know, I was knitting this jumper that I'm wearing, which is quite a complex pattern. And I was reading code. As far as I'm concerned, there were these letters which meant something, which meant how you put the needles into the stitches, how you swap things around. There was also another chart which just had little boxes with symbols in them. Now, I haven't quite gotten to that skill of knitting to read that kind of chart, but that to me was coding. And then the amount of 3D visualization skills you need in order to knit or crochet something is incredible. And it really, really frustrates me that um, these, like the technical aspect of these crafts, I don't think is recognized, particularly in knitting. Mm. So Irmandi, I would love to hear a little bit more about your grandma's to know about what kind of work she was doing. And did she know that the work she was doing was actually really scientific and technical and challenging in that sense? Yeah, that's, that's, an, that's an interesting thought and question. Like, I think my grandma, she did a lot of weaving um, using jacquard machines. Um, and she makes a bunch of uh, a cloth, like tablecloths. So back then, it's kind of like she she knew the know-how, but she learned it by hand memory, um, by um, her mom and mm. like different generations, basically. So I think she didn't have that, you know, technical scientific background that she couldn't really like make an analog between uh, what she's making, how it could be in language of structures. 
but for me, I came from an engineering background, and actually, like looking at those, uh, you know, curl pearls uh, knit, uh, front and back knit, it felt natural to me actually. And I I started uh, learning to do fabric construction processes uh, when I did the scarf keyboard projects, but then it wasn't that seamless, right? So I got an I got a chance to live in a factory in Shenzhen in China and working with like a textile engineer there side by side and they knew all of the kings of the machines all of kind of a, a textile structures it was easy for me to learn the programming language but with textiles there were a lot of know-hows and structures i didn't know that came from knowledge so um and and now that you know i'm in this intersection between uh, me as an engineer, and I can be a designer of making the forms and the artist of making the patterns. So there, there are a lot of know-hows that I, I got from like working with them. So I think it's going back to your point, like multidisciplinary uh, approach is very important here, especially with text. And, and, and we can't, and, and we need to like involve more craftspeople because it's a knowledge of generation. We don't want to lose them. Yeah, I mean, I definitely, I, both my grandmas knitted and crocheted and then my mum did and then um, I've picked it up as well. So you've talked about your grandma and then her mum. I'm talking about my grandmas and me. And there seems to be perhaps a little bit of a gender divide here, which I find quite fascinating. And I wonder, maybe Anna, if you can share your thoughts on whether there is this lack of perception or respect perhaps for crafts like knitting, sewing, crochet, you know, textiles, because it's seen as women's work? Is it underestimated and not given the kind of credit it's deserved? I think so. Um, I think there's definitely a gendered element to it. And that goes back to historically as well, right? So in the kind of European and British, what they called cottage industries, the way that wool used to be produced in the British Isles was very, very small scale, small scale farms. And then local women would weave the fleeces from the sheep into yarn. And then those yarns would then go on to be sold. But it was very much women's work. And actually it was even sing specifically single women's work. Um, so the term spinster comes from the women who were spinners. Um, spinster meaning unmarried women. Yes. And so there's a huge like historical um, tradition, I guess, of textile crafts being grounded in women's work, which I think definitely kind of continues to today and probably does contribute to them being not taken as seriously or as respected as much as something like what would be traditionally thought of as a, you know, more male-dominated craft, like blacksmithing, for example. It's, you know, it's really fun. So I found a blog which is called The Crafty Gentleman and <laughs> what what the writer of that blog has done um, is explained that actually when knitting was commoditized, commercialized, expanded, kind of beyond the cottage industry, it was men that mm. did that. And there are, you know, kind of records of men knitting that um, he found. And I find that really, really interesting. But you know what's really interesting, actually, because um, Imandi was talking about the jacquard loom that his grandmother used to weave on. Um, the jacquard loom, I think, was a precursor or was the inspiration to very, very early computers. So it's funny, Roma, that you were saying um, that knitting patterns remind you of coding, because coding and computer languages, and Amanda can expand much more on this, I'm sure, have their roots in how the jacquard loom was programmed to create, you know, attractive designs in textiles. That's true. It's uh, like they have this like a, a square paper, like a punch cards 
to 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 do all the patterns and they use it for mathematical operations back then. I I I resonate with you about the the gender and also age. Thinking positively by having you know technology now and uh, embedded within textiles or a lot of digital fabrication involved, and young people love technology. Uh, they can appreciate more about textiles and by exactly having these important conversations, I hope more young people can you know be excited about you know textiles because it's such a an amazing materials like it's it's undergone it has a lot of history yeah and i mean i've i've actually met a couple of men in their mid 20s that are knitting and that makes me really really happy and and i will tell you another thing that my therapist says it's genuinely therapeutic for people with you know like stress or anxiety and everything so so get out there and knit it's so good for you so Imani, could you tell us a little bit more about the technology? So you described the scarf. Can you tell us a little bit what it looks like, what it's for, and what the kind of the science within the craft is? Yeah, so so the scarf keyboard is very interesting. Um, it's how I started to be in love with knitting. It started with the, uh, from a conversation from my professor, Joe, with this a pianist, uh, a jazz pianist, uh, Lyle Mace, and He's well known for um, composing music based on physics equation. And the project is an homage to him because he passed away before I got to finish it. The, the keyboard composed of various functional yarns. One is conductive. And then, so the idea is I fed the conductive yarns into the knitting machines to create a piano pattern textiles. The piano pattern are also conductive. So when you say conductive, does that, that means it can pass a current through it? Exactly. Yeah. So it's a yeah. silver coated yarn and by feeding a current, you create electric field and this electric field enables you to sense touch as well as proximity. And, and, and inside within textile structure, there's also strain sensing fibers. So this one is interesting because knitting structure is a beautiful structure because it can be stretchable. And I want to leverage this stretchability because um, fabric is such a great material for physical interfaces, just how tactile it is. So you can play a chord and you can stretch, you can massage the fabric, you can, you can stretch the keys apart to do some kind of modulations. It gave you like this really nice feeling when you play. So, so a lot of feedback from the musicians I got is like, it felt organic. It's as if the sound is coming out from the fabric rather than, you know, you push a button and then you hear sound. So, yeah, the project in the end became, I feel like, more impactful than what I thought. It would just be like, okay, it will be fun to make a keyboard that you can wear as a scarf. You can, you know, roll around, uh, fold it in luggage. So that's, yeah, it's a, that's a story about the needed keyboard. When you make stuff like that, how many prototypes do you have to make? What's your sort of methodology? So in the end, in terms of time, it would probably be, be similar because if we compare crafts with um, digital fabrications, you don't really have a set of limitations. But with, with the machine, I need to work with a set of limitations of the machine. So I needed to make a lot of prototypes in order to find some kind of like uh, sometimes a leeway and a, and a hack. For example, like Sometimes only certain fiber can go through knitting machines, right? Because it, it, will, it will undergo a lot of stretching and, and looping. But um, I found this technique um, called inlay knitting that I found it very fascinating because um, some of the fibers that I work with, because they're functional and they're uh, it's thicker than a normal polyester yarn. So you can't really knit it. 
But um, I found this technique um, called inlay knitting that I found it very fascinating. So by having this inlay, by, by weaving them as the other base yarns are knitting, I'm able to kind of seamlessly integrate them within the fabric structure. And, and it's just such a magic for me, but for, you know, like crafts people, it's been done. Like they, they're, it's, uh, it's already a routine. Like for them, it's, it's, it's a basic knowledge. So. And that's it, isn't it? Like when we, when we ignore that knowledge base in the crafts, like it's the engineering that suffers, right? <laughs> like we don't find the solutions that we need. I think that's like the crux of it for me is the process of making is so important for engineering, right? There's, what we sometimes call the design loop of design, make, test, design, make, test, design, make, test. And you go round and round and round this loop, as you say, sometimes many, many times before you're happy with the textile or the material or the building or whatever it is that you're trying to create. It's that process of making that is how we learn as engineers and it's how we improve our designs. So I think, yeah, that for me is like the real importance of craft with engineering actually i have a question for anna about this you know because if you if you think about functional textiles uh for me it's about adding electronics and electronics becoming a part of the function but i think like smart textiles electronic textile is like a subset of functional textiles and there are a lot of um, ways you can make functional textiles so i, I want I'm, I'm curious about anna's perspective about other uh, types of materials that could allow this function? Yeah, my work in smart textiles was taking a materials engineering approach, which was looking at kind of structural property relationships. Um, actually, I made mine with 3D printing um, and my smallest repeating unit of one textile that I made was like a little cube that was hollow. And it was like a chainmail material, basically. And there were two questions with it really one was how would the shape of the links themselves affect mechanical properties but then two could you change those mechanical properties in response to a stimulus and that's where the idea of quote-unquote smart materials smart textiles came into it it's that responsivity to the environment that I was really fascinated by and the example that I looked at was a magnetic field so what I ended up doing was 3D printing this flexible chainmail material made of these little cubes all joined together and giving that magnetic functionality. So I dipped it in magnetic fluid, dried it so it became a magnetic plastic textile. And then I experimented with how you could change the stiffness of that material depending on the proximity of a magnetic field. So it was to do with could you make it stiff or flexible depending on whether there's a magnet nearby? The answer was yes. <laughs> so I made these, these fabrics that you could kind of control the stiffness of with magnets. And the next step to it, which I didn't get round to, would have been actually collaborating with someone like yourself to, I was just using a permanent magnet, like what you'd have on your fridge. But if you could incorporate electromagnets that are able to be switched on and off, you know, with an electric field, could you then integrate electronics with those um, smart fabrics to make something wearable that has variable stiffness? The reason that we wanted to do that was really as a kind of wearable medical device. The, our idea was that when you like break your arm, for example, today what happens is you get put in a plaster cast, right? So your whole arm gets put in a completely stiff 
material. And then a few weeks later, when your bone is healed underneath, it comes off. But what we wondered was, would it actually be kinder to the body and more helpful for the healing process if you could dial down that stiffness gradually? And that wouldn't just be for broken bones, right? It could be for people with other mobility issues. They need a little bit of support sometimes, but not to others. Could you create a wearable device that could support them and be tailored to what they needed. I could also see an application in adaptive shoes, you know, having like like a that shoe that changes like stiffness as 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 you run as you walk, kind of like making it more comfortable or even improve your performance. I think that would be really cool too. Like a soul. Oh, yeah. Okay, so I can see lots of ideas brewing here, which is excellent. <laughs> um Irmandi, what what are some of the real life applications for smart textiles that you're looking forward to? And what is the importance of bringing craft and engineering together to achieve those goals? Yeah, it's, I think like Anna is bridging it perfectly because um, one of research area in terms of electronic textiles I'm really passionate about is in the medical fields too. Currently, like the way we do healthcare is still very primitive. You go to hospital, sleep on a bed, a lot of wires with this like very old monitors, and then you stick these electrodes to your body. Sometimes it's uncomfortable for you know infants and the elderly, right? So one of the projects I had is called the Electronic Textile Conformable Suit. And this is where the craft comes in. One example of wearables for medical sensing is, of course, your smartwatch, right? It's, it's on your wrist. It added a little bit of compression because of the belt. And our typical T-shirt, they're... T-shirts, they're a little bit loose. So there's a problem there because in order for a sensor to be functioning properly, it needs to have a great contact with the skin, a great sensor-to-skin contact. So by using this digital fabrication knitting, uh, I basically scan your body and develop like this conformable, a little bit of compression, a tight suit that you can wear with integrated sensors. What I'm talking about integrated sensors are, I'm talking about the sensors you typically use in the hospital, like respiration, heart rate. And it allows a future, well, not that far future, where doctors can monitor you from wherever you are in, and you can go to hospital when you really need it, when it's actually necessary. Yeah, so I guess that all that data can be collected into a smartphone or a device, and then you can kind of look at it, or your doctors can look at it, and that sounds, that sounds really cool. Anna, what's what's the future of bringing craft and engineering and science together for you? Well, so I'll start with for me personally. My craft journey started with that kind of personal challenge of like, how can I find out more about this unknown side of materials? And what I found was far too many crafts that any one person would ever be able to master, right? It kind of when you watch a master craftsperson, it takes a lifetime to truly be able to, you know, master these crafts. So I was resigned pretty early on to the fact that I would only ever be a very bad maker of most things, (laughs) Um, despite being very enthusiastic and appreciative of the craft and gained a real appreciation actually for those master crafts people who have dedicated a lifetime to it. For me, it comes down to playing into the idea of how we value materials. And that's something that really sits at the core of my work. And it only really became apparent to me when I started talking to craftspeople was the respect and the value that they show to their materials is totally different to how most people respect or value the stuff that comes into their lives, right? 
And the very end of that process is the big problem that we have of, you know, waste around the globe. And particularly plastic waste has become very prominent in the media, but actually it's all kinds of waste. We are very irresponsible with our material usage. And I think that craft and hand-making processes have a really important part to play there because, you know, as you know, you're wearing your hand-knitted jumper today with pride. The way that we... I'm, I'm, I'm never taking it off. No, exactly. It's basically just been on, that's it. <laughs> The way that we value stuff that we have personally made and the time and the effort that we've seen go into that completely changes our relationship with that object. And I think if everybody understood what goes into making this stuff in the factory or by the master craftsperson, we would change our attitude to it and we would value it better and we would probably solve that problem of waste and work out how to make it a bit more of a sustainable sort of material world. Thank you. I think that's incredibly important. I was really shocked because I read a statistic recently that the textile industry produces more, I'm going to get this slightly wrong probably, but waste or carbon than maritime and aircrafts put together. I resonate with um, Anna. I think like we buy a lot of clothes, we overconsume clothes we, and we under we undervalue them, we underuse them. So, so, so they become waste. And that's why like crafts and culture they're important here because especially with like cultural textiles, we appreciate them a lot. You know, they like we really treat them with respect uh, rather than like, you know, the this um, age of fast fashion. We, we treat textiles as consumables. In, in my perspectives, by like really looking at these immaterial qualities, especially like adding technology, I hope to increase their value. So so we become like appreciative of of them and use them more and yeah hopefully by that we we can reduce this you know overconsumption and underappreciation of textiles so thank you so much dr anna poshaisky and irmandi wichaksona for joining me for this really fascinating conversation about how craft and textile and engineering all come together I think my big takeaway from our conversation is about how we can actually bring that connection and that relationship that we might have with textiles out to the front and to value that relationship more, you know, so that we can do away with this idea of fast fashion and instead have that respect that Irmandi was talking about for the materials that we're producing. You've been listening to Create the Future, a podcast from the Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering and Peanut and Crumb. This episode was hosted by me, Roma Agrawal, and featured Dr. Anna Poshaisky and Irmandi Wichaksono. It was produced by Jude Shapiro. Look out for new episodes every fortnight We'll be exploring topics such as sustainable city building, what baking has in common with space exploration, and even AI-enhanced humans. To find out more, follow QE Prize on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook.